Automata with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to our newest episode of the RoboHub podcast. In this episode, our interviewer Lauren Klein speaks to PhD candidate Michal Luria at Carnegie Mellon University about her research, which explores the boundaries of human-robot interaction. Humans have been making machines for centuries, as far back as ancient Greece. In fact, the word automata, the plural of automaton, comes from a Greek word that means self-acting and refers to machines that appear to be self-operating or autonomous. Examples of the automata of old include tools, toys, religious idols and scientific prototypes, often powered mechanically by water or wind. Michal Luria's projects draw inspiration from periods including medieval times to explore how historical objects and automata could inspire modern robotics. Hi, welcome to RoboHub. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Michal Luria. I'm a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon, and I work on research that looks at how we design robots and human-robot interaction. Um, I come from a media and um, design background, so I'm interested in what are the different ways that we can understand um, not how to design something best, but why to design it in the first place. So I think we kind of as a field don't really have a really good answer for why robots. Um, and I ask myself that a lot as well. So I use all kinds of methods to try and get at this question of why robots and are we even designing the right thing and not just how to design robots right. And that's where this kind of medieval robot right. experiment you're doing comes into play. Yes. So can one you tell pro- me, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm working on a project um, where I'm trying to, with a group of uh, great students, we're trying to recreate um, a robot from medieval times. Mm-hmm. So the, there's this very beautiful book that actually inspired this project by Ellie Trude. Um, she's a professor in Penn University, and she wrote a book about the history of robots, and they have an amazing history of uh, these golden brass structures, um, all mechanically engined because we didn't have computers in the 13th century. Um, and so these robots, you like, they get, I think we look at the history of computing to try and understand where robotics would go, but the history is so much further back. And I think there's value in kind of looking at these kinds of radical designs that we had in the past and trying to understand why. And is there any value in recreating them to understand the future of robotics or human-robot interaction? Okay, so what were they used for then and what are you interested in recreating them for now? So they were used for, um, there were several interesting robots that I'm looking at. One is um, this robot that it's, so the the other interesting part is that it's very vague in the descriptions. So there's a lot to interpret, but um, one robot Mm -hmm. is a robot that basically um, was in four corners of a guest room. Okay. So it's like four 
robots each in a corner of a room and they were served as um to keep get to like host guests basically and um so they say that the books or the historical descriptions say that one robot was used to entertain so it would like juggle and do all kinds of mechanical beautiful things mm-hmm. and then when it stopped the guests would know they have to leave yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um the second one was like a, a robot with a mirror that kind of uh, helped guests see what how they present themselves and how they look mm-hmm. um and it did have some movement. The third one um I don't remember the third one. Let me think. Well, I'll maybe I'll get back to that later, but the fourth one is kind of this vague description of um the robot allows people to reconsider their values and think and reflect on their personality and behavior. Interesting. And is this the one that you're kind of most interested in exploring? I mean, I I like how mysterious it is and what it does, <laughs> and I think it would be mm-hmm. interesting to think what that robot would actually do. And I think that um this whole construction is yeah it's uh, it's they all work together as like four corners of a room so there's also mm-hmm. some we can imagine there is some interaction between the four or between the the guests that move around i remembered what the third one was um it plays music in a in a volume that is just enough so people will hear each other but not other conversations around okay yeah. wow yeah so, so- I guess that's so interesting because a lot of us right now think of robotics as this very new topic with computer science and being autonomous but really it was you know there's a lot of history there from a time before a lot of us would think about robotics and maybe the design elements there weren't so far off from what we're trying to achieve now. Yeah, I think um one other thing that I find really interesting in this history is that aesthetically they were also very different than what we like when we imagine robots we have this i guess imagery that comes from media uh, mm-hmm. movies of like sci-fi and what robot and these metallic creatures yeah. um and i guess they, they do have in common the metallic part but they're mostly designed in human form um but in a very kind of artistic way so a lot of like a lot of use of very rich materials and this was these robots were in, in people's homes that had a lot of money and would host these big parties that required mm-hmm. robots to manage the right. guests um and <laughs> uh-huh. to and also to as a way of to show their richness but also to entertain and i think today we think about robots in a very functional way and there i think there is more space to consider the entertainment part so another robot robotic structure from medieval times is this fountain interactive fountain that basically serves you milk wine and honey mm-hmm. um and again it's like around it's around parties and guests but it's um all and and it's actually the interesting part is it's actually a wizard of oz uh robot okay. <laughs> from medieval times so if i think so there's was, a human behind the scenes working it is is what you mean by wizard of oz yes okay. so there is a human pumping in <laughs> <laughs> all these things uh to serve the guests but i think it's interesting why these people with these machines wanted 
a person like why is it not just served up front right, right why is by it that a person like this or robot a person. yeah that's very impressive and it mm. serves you wine <laughs> as opposed to just serving right. people wine yeah so it was definitely a uh, something of the elite but i think it's still interesting to think about and hopefully by reconstructing something like that we could we i'm, I'm not suggesting that we design these robots and that's the direction robots should go in but i think by doing that practice we can better understand and better define and have another perspective on the kind of robots that we design today okay um and to help kind of see the bigger picture of what robotics could be and and perhaps break some of the assumptions that we currently make and we all do that all the time like we have each one of us has sure. this very like specific definition of what is a robot and i think it's a big debate in the field sometimes but i think um if we look at something very different and then we're like oh maybe this is also a robot then um it can help us design things differently Okay, and so that's what your work is hoping to explore. So can you tell me a little bit about the work you're developing now to look at some of these concepts? Uh, yeah, so I'm doing another project of um, looking at destruction in HCI. Okay. And it's actually, uh, it goes both ways because I think there is value in thinking about negative behaviors in HCI. Mm -hmm. So people have a lot of, I think negative emotions are an important part of human lives and we tend to design technology again in a very like functional way in a very utilitarian um, direction and we wanted to make us more efficient and better and you know eat healthier and do more exercise and all the good things and we yeah. always want to be happier but I think we can't like there's we have to have some negative in our lives to balance it out and mm -hmm. to make the happiness shine yeah. I think it's an, an, and I think one of the reasons I um, was th thinking a lot about destruction is that I feel like this like trying to be happy all the time just doesn't work for me because it just when I don't feel happy it's uh, I feel like that's not something wrong yeah. so I think it's, it should be a part of life right and I think that um, in HCI as a field we kind of tend to ignore this range of emotions and so that's what started my project on um, ro robots for catharsis mm -hmm. and the idea is to create robots that um, basically torture in all kinds of ways <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it's more than that because it's um, it's first of all it steps away from trying to design robots as human beings and it actually suggests perhaps a radical way but a way to use robots in a, in a way that we wouldn't want to attract with people mm -hmm. but it also gives outlet to um to negative emotions and kind of by doing some activity with technology that allows you to both reflect and to vent, which is according to psychology um, and, and a lot of research that has been done in this area, there is value in reflecting and venting and letting out these negative emotions. Right. And so a robot maybe could be a medium for doing this, whereas you wouldn't, whereas a person might not be the best because you don't want to always be projecting those negative emotions onto other people. But a robot could be a, like a safer way or a, an alternative way to do that. Yeah. And I think that um, once you... So I built uh, multiple prototypes um, that were more of like a proof of concept prototypes that you could 
interact with in different ways. So one prototype, you stick pins into it and it starts like shaking um, according to the amount. Of, so it like can handle a certain amount and then you kind of, when you saturate that, you need to start taking out the pins, which is another mm-hmm. action that I feel is kind of an embodied cognition action when you kind of reflectively take out the pins. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is one that basically uh, measures your... Um, heartbeat and when your heartbeat when you're too nervous or too too much anxiety going on there it's not an exact measure but um, once you're emotionally very very um, like you need to let some of that out the the robot would start laughing in a very irritating voice Uh, when uh you you, it, it looks like a doll so it looks kind of looks like this puppet thing so um, I'll talk about that in a moment. But you basically, to make it stop laughing, you need to smack it on a table, which is a very enjoyable act because it's soft. <laughs> right. Interesting. <laughs> and and, okay. and the, the, um, the, the action of it laughing in this annoying voice kind of encourages you to like, you, want, you just want to smack it. If you would hear wow, the sound of the, its laughter, you would want okay. to smack it. And so... Um, all these robots are designed as non-human robots because I think part of it is that they're, I, I call them um, objects for catharsis because right. they, they do have elements of socialness, but they, I, I realize the problematic aspect of encouraging people to torture robots that look human-like, so I try right. to step Could away have, from like, that. like a different emotional impact. Right. Um, and, and yeah, I think, so in general, these robots kind of probe at, from one side, they actually, I actually think there is a space to design robots or HCI in general for negative emotions. But on the other side, I also think that people react to it very strongly. When they, whenever someone hears about the project, they're like, oh, wow, that's very, like, the, the mixed reaction. Some people don't like it, but people usually would have a reaction, and I think that's valuable as a field because again it's like ask the questions of wait what is hri why do we need robots um what is like does this is this included in what hri is or is this sure like should we include this kind of interaction i think by making people criticize it it actually maybe encourages them to criticize other things that seem more obvious um, or, right. or que- again, question some of the assumptions. So it both challenges our current assumptions, but I, it's not like I think it's just there to be provocative. I do think there's also value in, in designing negative or right. pro- uh, prototypes that encourage negative emotions as well. It reminds me a little bit of performance art where kind of there's an actor doing something or an artist doing something and it's meant to kind of provoke emotions in the in the viewer but there's a robot here now like as a part of this as opposed to just people and it's a more interactive experience um right which was really interesting so when you say that you put the pins in and you take the pins out and there's kind of this expressive reaction happening by the robot Mm -hmm. which i know is something that a lot of roboticists are trying to do is create affect or create emotion so can you tell me a little bit technically about how you are building that and what types of materials or what types of robotic components are you using to create these emotions that the users are picking up on yeah um i think creating expressive emotion is an entire research 
um, area of itself, and there are many researchers who just focus on that. Um, I usually I like memory alloy a lot, and I use it in many of my prototypes because it has um, it has natural ease in and ease out. Um, mm-hmm. So for doesn't know it's a special um, it's a material nitinol that basically when you heat it up um, or pass and you can heat it up through electricity it shrinks and then when you cool it down it goes back to its original shape okay. and you can design you can define what is the shape that it shrinks to okay. by pre-coating the material yeah so I like that because it really has like it kind of works like a muscle and it has like natural ease in and ease out characteristics but it's anyone who has worked with it would tell you it's a nightmare (laughs) okay it's a a material that it's kind of sounds like perfect because you don't have to worry about all right but it's a bit more complicated but it's hard it's hard to control you can't like know exactly what it if it would look nice and then there's um it wears out so if you do if you do the same motion like a hundred times, it would lose its form after a while. So you have to reprogram um, the material. Okay. Um, so it has its challenges. I think with motors, it's harder to um, create more expressive motion. But I do use motors, and I think by I sometimes use uh, secondary motion as a way to make these prototypes slightly more expressive. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the prototypes I used black uh, uh, fringes um, that were all around the robot, and then the robot had this one degree of freedom, but that was the one that you poke with pins. When you poke pins, it like moves from side to side, but it has all these fringes, and they kind of move all over the place right, in so all directions. Right, so you get additional effects. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I um, try to use simple techniques Especially because it's more of a proof of concept, and I'm just trying to show mm-hmm. um, the type of interaction that I think is interesting. And I think we don't need a lot for that. I mean, people get the interaction even without fancy motion. Um, but I do use techniques that are usually choosing the material and um, to express all kinds of things. So the doll that you smack, it's made of soft materials. Mm-hmm. Um, so it basically, it's a doll from fabric and all the electronics are inside. Okay. Okay. So um, that makes it also horrible to work with because of something, I had something um, disconnect there. So I basically okay. had to open up the doll and fix that like soldier or whatever fell off and then mm-hmm. sew it back up. So it's a lot of work. Right, because um, it has to be quite robust, I'm sure, if you're smacking it against the table. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't survive too many interactions, but I'm working on making it more robust because mm-hmm. <laughs> it has to combine like the, the hardness of the materials and then the softness of being able to interact with a table. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and okay. I think in general, material is something that interests me a lot, and I think each material kind of brings a range of qualities with it and a range of interactions so I definitely hope to see more materials in HRI beyond the metal and plastic. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, working with things like ceramics potentially or, um, you know, rubber or, or soft fabric or soft material. I think each one of these mm-hmm. brings its own characteristic. I've also been 
playing with the idea of wax and its characteristics of being able to melt and what that brings and being sometimes soft but sometimes hard. So I think there's mm -hmm. a ton of interesting materials that we don't explore enough and um, they bring and, and they define part of the interaction, which I think is could be interesting potentially. So how are you, what techniques are you using to measure or describe the way that humans are interacting with these prototypes? So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's kind of complicated. First of all, because no IRB would ever approve it. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think, um, and actually I'm, I, uh, I just wrote a workshop paper about this, about the difficulty of designing for negative emotion because you get judged by your community and you get judged by IRB who doesn't approve. You can't evaluate it. So the way that I'm planning right now to evaluate it is to do like a self-study. So I don't mind uh, ruining my own psychology by testing uh, torture robots on myself. And I, and I think the risk is low, but people don't want to go there, especially because it's hard to show the value of it. And, and in mm -hmm. general, there's psychology shows that people are just, you know, have a lot of aversive emotions towards negative emotions. People don't mm -hmm. like thinking about sadness or anger and they just try to avoid it. And I think it's, it's an unhealthy um, habit and we all do it all the time. But I think that it's definitely hard to, to do research about it because everyone's first reaction is like, nope. We don't want to support this. Um, so that's about this project. But I think in general, what I try to do is to um, put people in, sh in the shoes of interactions that don't yet exist. So I use a lot of Wizard of Oz techniques. Mm -hmm. um, one other method I, I used recently is it's called um, enactments. So speed dating with enactments. It's actually a method that's pretty common in HCI, but I think HRI... Um, could definitely benefit from adapting it. And the idea is to have participants um, come in the lab, but the whole lab is structured as an experience. It's like a um, performance for one audience, for, so one person in the audience. Mm -hmm. And they basically go through an interaction with a bunch of agents and a bunch of um, other robots or whatever the interaction requires that I'll give an example in a moment and um, basically using props and technology and a lot of Wizard of Ozing, we help people um, have a sip of all kinds of interactions from the future and then they can and then we interview them and they can really reflect on their experience and not just think about what they would want because we know you from history that users don't know what they want but I think there's a lot of value in having people experience just a little bit of some future to be able to reflect on their own values better. And it's, it's the method of speed dating. So kind of like romantic speed dating, you don't really know anything about any of the like, people you met or any of the situations you encountered, but you get a better sense of what are your values and what are you looking for. Right. Um, so one example, a study that I recently, it's actually, the paper is coming out in DIS this year, and so it's about um, if agents' self uh, social presentation should move from one body to another. Okay. So right now we interact with many different agents, so should it be the same social presence or mind that kind of moves mm -hmm. from body to body? Or a different person Or is it like time. a new agent every time? Okay. 
And so we probed, um, we probed several situations around these topics, but one that we did was uh, simulating a situation where a person is going to the DMV to get a driver's license and this agent meets them in the en- at the entrance and kind of goes with them throughout the entire interaction. So the agent is like, okay, I'll meet you downstairs. And then when they get downstairs, the agent is there in a new body and mm-hmm. it, in, a, in a mobile body. And it moves them to the next station. And then in the next station, it moves to like this tiny screen. But it's still, hey, it's me. And, um, and people, so the surprising finding was that people felt very comfortable with it. So mm-hmm. we tend to think that robots should be human-like. And this is a very non-human behavior, right? That sure. you can just appear in different bodies. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so people had a mental model that this is... This actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think if you would have asked them if they want, wanted that, maybe the results would have been different. Mm-hmm. I think by experiencing this thing where the agent kind of follows you and you see it everywhere and you recognize it's the same agent, um, kind of allowed people to... And we, and we noticed in the interviews, people say, oh, yeah, that, surprisingly, that was like fit perfectly well with what my expectations and I and I enjoyed that the agent was I felt like cared for by this agent mm-hmm. um, so I think uh, that's one method of kind of probing at these uh, interactions that don't yet exist without having to go through the entire process of developing it because when we develop something we want to know that we're designing the right thing but sometimes we don't know and so we need some methods to help us first get a sense of, is, are we even in the right direction? Right. Is this even the right thing to design or to think about? And once we get a better sense, like now we have a better sense that, yes, this works, then maybe we can start thinking about developing actual prototypes. But this is a great method to kind of probe at different things. And we also found that there are some things that people really didn't like in the same interaction. So another concept we, we tested was co-embodiment, we call it. Um, so the other one was re-embodiment, where the robot moves from one body to another. Co-embodiment is when two agents are in the same body. And uh, we tested that, and we had an interaction where the two agents talked to each other. Yeah, people did not like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, it, and it brought up very strong emotions of people saying, oh, they're, these agents are plotting against me. I wow. feel like a third wheel. Um, this is this makes me feel very uncomfortable. Um, people, yeah, I think it's definitely we we hit on some sensitive point there, and we're definitely I'm, I'm definitely interested in further exploring why that is because it was it was so sensitive that I was like, huh, like why why is this such? I thought people would like it. It's like oh, they, and I I thought the the my hypothesis was that people would like it because. It's very transparent, right? Like agents talk to each other all the time, and all our devices talk to each other all the time, just not in human language. Sure. And they do it behind our backs, and nobody has a problem with that. So I think right. that um, it's it's interesting to do further research to try and understand what is it about like the human communication of verbally speaking to each other that people are like, no, right? Why does that make like it that. so different from what's already happening? Right. And w- and I feel like this is a the, by using the design process we can really get at these things that um, if we would have gone through the entire process of developing it 
and then we evaluate it. It would it would lead to different results and to have people interact with robots that do all kinds of things and then kind of sure. reflect on it as a whole. So that's why the early prototyping step is so important to your work because and to really all robotics in general because you need to kind of, if we want to have the interaction be fluid and evoke a certain emotion or response in the person, then we need to understand kind of these more basic elements before we integrate them into a larger system. Yes, definitely. And I think if we uh, design something and then we evaluate it, what we're doing is we're basically evaluating if we designed the thing right. But again, going back to, this is Baxter um, in design theory, but he says, you don't want to design the thing right, you want to design the right thing, you can't get at that by building something and testing it. You have to Mm -hmm. use exploratory work and to have people reflect on many different options to get at these ideas that you you wouldn't have been able to come up with by just evaluating the single prototype. Great. Well, thank you so much for for your insight and best of luck as you continue your PhD. Thank Thank you you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. And I'm afraid that's it for today. Fascinating stuff. Check out robohub.org forward slash podcast for more information on this and all our past episodes. And if there's something you're excited about and would like to hear featured in one of our upcoming podcast episodes, you can let us know by emailing our president, Audro, directly at audro.nash at robohub.org. Our next episode will air in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Automata with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.